Welcome to our bi-weekly Essay for FAs podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest to financial advisors and active investors, including retirement planning, asset allocation, and the economy. I am your host, Gil Weinrich of Seeking Alpha. We are now speaking with my guest, Shahar Kariv. Our last podcast was what I would call an extraordinary bestseller. Our listeners <laughs> appreciated it. <laughs> and I have to say that I particularly liked it, which is why I've demanded that Shahar come back on this call. Thank you for having me back, Gil. It's, uh, it was fun and we should do it often. Yes, we should. The biggest insight that I personally learned from our talk, and I emphasize learned because it really wasn't part of my thinking previously, was that it is in a sense an understatement to say that stocks are risky. You characterize them instead as ambiguous, meaning that we can't really assess their probabilities in the same way that we can tell a patient how likely a surgery is to succeed. I think that that insight is critical to understand how to invest. It's helped me. It reinforces my view of the importance of diversification. But I didn't invite you on here to just talk at you. I actually want to hear what your thoughts are. How is an investor to methodically set about navigating the world of investing? Shahar, please take a step-by-step from A to B to C. The first thing that an investor should do is get the most precise information and reliable information possible about the market. Still, no matter what information the investor has, he is not going to get precise information what is the expected return and what is the volatility. There is going to be a range of possible expected returns and possible volatilities. When there is a range of objective information, then we are facing a situation where there is ambiguity. When objective information out there cannot pin down how the market is going to behave, there is ambiguity. And then the investor has to form subjective beliefs what the expected return and what the volatility of each product in the market is. And because we can never pin down these parameters, there is always ambiguity about the market. So I would say that there are two ways that the investor actually suffers from ambiguity. First, there is ambiguity, as I explained, about how the market will behave. And secondly, and as important, you also have ambiguity about yourself because you really don't know how much risk you can handle. You don't know how much loss you can handle. So an investor has to navigate not knowing entirely or objectively knowing what is going to happen in the market and also not entirely knowing his own preferences and how he can digest market volatility. So an investor has to invest a lot in resolving these two types of uncertainty, uncertainty about the market and uncertainty about himself. Okay, in practical terms. So I would first talk about the market. There is going to be sometimes a wide range of assumptions about where the market is going. What is the expected return of different, of different products? 
and what are the standard deviations or the volatility of the border. Can I stop you there? Absolutely. Okay, your average investor doesn't know what the expected returns are and doesn't know what the expected volatility is and doesn't know how to access that information. Do you really think that the average investor should try to get a hold of that information or is there something more basic that he can do? The average patient doesn't know what exactly cholesterol is, but he knows that this is important to him and uh, he has the right sources of seeking advice. This is why the job of financial advisor is so important and we must find a way to explain basic financial terminology. We must find a way to increase people's uh, financial literacy. Everyone has to interact with the market these days and the basic information about the market like expected return and volatility, uh, we must overcome the hurdle and explain the average investor what it is. Otherwise, we are going to be in a world where financial advisors will need to adapt kind of a paternalistic attention to people, uh, meaning, you know, they are kids, they don't know what to choose, they cannot digest the information. And I think that we cannot, we can no longer shy away from these conversations. I'm going to not shy away from it. I'm going to challenge you directly. Today, expected returns for stocks are poor for the next 10 years, according to most sources. Usually, they'll say that emerging markets have higher expected returns for over the next 10 years. But nevertheless, were somebody to access that information and arrive at that result, he might assume that he should therefore not invest. Are you telling the investor they should wait 10 years and then get back into the market? What is he to make? <laughs> the, what is the average investor to make of the fact that average respected returns for stocks are very poor over the next 10 years? Okay. We always need to look at the other side. You know, retirement readiness is the most important, I think, challenge that we are facing. What's the alternative? Is the alternative to put the money just in bonds? Uh, then, of course, people will need to work much more and uh, they will need to save much more and uh, they will not be able to retire at the time that they want to retire with the amount of wealth that they want to retire with. So I don't object to the idea of waiting on the sidelines and waiting for the right opportunity to go into stocks. But I think especially with long-term investors that are thinking about retirement and investment over years in an horizon of 10 years and even more, people must basically jump into the water and do this because taking the alternative and not uh, investing in stocks basically means that uh, you won't have enough for retirement and you need to change your life plans. Save more, retire later. I think that we need to have a holistic view. The question is not whether to invest in stocks or not to invest in stocks. If you don't invest in stocks, then you need to do other things in order to compensate for, you know, not trying to get after higher expected returns. But Gil, I think it brings us back to what we are talking about. People uh, need to know more about the market. Also, when they understand how the markets can move, they need to learn more about themselves and actually know, can they digest this right? Can they basically go into more risky assets that could 
get them higher expected returns and build the buffers in case uh, these options are not giving to them a higher expected returns. It's all trade-offs that you have to make. Okay, so let's talk about one trade-off. You say that people need to learn more about the markets. The normal source of information, or at least the first source of information that investors access is typically the news articles in, let's say, the Wall Street Journal. When people read those things, frankly, they're typically frightened. You know, the volatility of the markets, the steep declines we saw in the global economy and China's problems and the trade wars. If people are to gain information about the market and that's information that they're gaining, they're not likely to do what you were suggesting (laughs) and invest. They're likely to just pull out. Okay. I agree entirely that these are uh, challenging times. There is a lot of uh, instability, and the instability leads to increased ambiguity. We don't know what is going to happen. Here, I think, again, comes the role of financial advisors. If financial advisor wants to make themselves relevant, what they need to do is to be able to interpret the noise in the media and being able to distinguish what is a trend and what is a noise and explain to people the alternatives that staying on the sidelines and not investing uh, will not lead them to happy ever after. They will need to make tough, tough decisions in terms of uh, saving more, uh, working uh, more years, etc., etc. This is really what I think is the challenging that we are facing. And the interactions with clients, both in helping clients understand the market and helping clients to understand themselves, whether they are able to cope with the market, is the two key challenges of the profession. And I agree that these days, uh, these challenges are extreme. I actually agree profoundly with one thing you said. To me, the key value of using a financial advisor is just sort of a, a tracking or accountability. If you go to a financial advisor, his or her job is to get you invested. He's not thinking about staying on the sidelines, generally speaking. He's thinking, you know, that's his job. His exactly. Job and so I almost think that like, if you go to the average advisor, you're probably going to do better than average because the average investor, which of course uh, includes those who are advised and those who are unadvised, includes people who are just going to duck out because they're scared and they're, they can't time their entries and they can't time their exits. So I actually think you're right. Having a process in place is likely to help. So my first concrete suggestion, and I say I cannot agree more uh, with what you say, is that I think that the financial advisor should basically start the discussion by knowing the client and helping the client to know himself. Why am I saying this? The first thing that I think an advisor must know about his client, about investors, is their level of risk aversion, loss aversion, and as I said, most importantly, ambiguity aversion. Once the the advisor and the client have common knowledge and they understand what it is, this will direct the conversation. For example, someone who is what we call has high risk tolerance, he's not loss averse, he's not ambiguity averse, there is a point for a financial advisor to start explaining him products in the market. Because even though these are not the greatest time, this person can digest the ups and downs in the market and the advisor can lead him to invest. 
On the other hand, if someone has low levels of risk tolerance, he's highly loss averse, he's highly ambiguity averse, the advisor should actually put this person for the meantime on the sideline and check with him in a relatively short period of time again. And today, the frontier of research in behavioral economics allows us to basically get a good fingerprint on people risk aversion, loss aversion, and ambiguity aversion. And the difference in this uh, in risk, loss, and ambiguity should basically lead the discussion. For example, stocks in emerging markets, this is something that people that are less ambiguity averse can digest. The difference between emerging markets and non-emerging markets is that emerging markets, the information is less precise, so there is more ambiguity. So you can, you can only steal people that have high tolerance to ambiguity into investing in emerging markets. So I think the first step is that the advisor knows the investor, the investor knows himself, and as we always say in game theory, common knowledge is important. Also, the investor trusts the advisor that the advisor knows him. It's not enough for the advisor to know the investor and for the investor to know himself. It's also very important that the investor knows that the advisor knows him. This is going to build what is the most important in any relationship, but of, but especially in this advisor-advisee relationship when it comes to money, and this is trust. Wow. So it sounds to me like you're saying that having a relationship actually is of importance. It's not just like a professional service. There's a, a relationship between the advisor and the client that are that is critical here. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's the same trust that we build with our physicians. If a patient doesn't have trust in uh, his physician, he will go and get a second opinion and a third opinion and so on and so forth. I agree with you that these are not the most stable times in the markets, but the macroeconomy will be what the macroeconomy is. The way for us to make progress is to know our clients better and for each client, after knowing him, to know what is kind of the right treatment for him. And my belief is that a very small minority of clients should basically, for now, stand on the sidelines. Everyone can be engaged with certain degree with the market. How this engagement, what the size of the engagement is, again, it goes back to the risk aversion, the loss aversion, and the ambiguity aversion of the client. That's fantastic. Can you offer another concrete idea? Yes. Yeah, so the other thing that we always need to basically measure is how patient the client is. This is what we call time preferences. How much you can basically, for example, put a client on the sideline depends on his time preferences. How patient he is, he or she is, how eager they are to get returns. We have methods to basically match portfolios that will sit comfortably with the client. Okay, so if you get a portfolio that matches the client's 
basically we're talking about is patience. Yes. Uh, when you say time preferences. However, are we going to get performance out of this portfolio? I mean, ultimately, as we discussed initially, the great challenge today is retirement security. And sometimes there may be a, a mismatch between what a client's needs are and what he's willing to tolerate. So how do you bridge that yes. gap? How do we bridge that gap? That's the key question, I think. You know, I always give the example that, you know, this tension is not only a tension that comes in uh, in making financial decisions. You know, I have a constant tension in my life that I want to lose 10 pounds, but I don't have time to go to the gym and I don't like to exercise and I like to eat. Well, now I have a problem. So when I go to an expert who is, a, in this example, is a professional trainer, the professional trainer needs to give me an exercise regime such that what will happen? I will lose weight given the fact that I don't have time to exercise and given the fact that I don't really like to exercise. So, of course, uh, the exercise regime that uh, that the, that the personal trainer will give me, uh, no, I'll have pain. I will experience pain for me, but no pain, no gain. If the if the personal trainer tells me, Shapal, sit in front of the TV and eat potato chips. This is what your exercise regime is. Well, <laughs> this is not going to work. Even though this exercise regime is great, I would love it. But this doesn't work, okay? So I think that this is part of this relationship that we talked about. It has to be clear that what the advisor is actually offering the client now is offering the client an exercise regime. And if you go to the gym and you don't sweat, then you didn't do anything. A portfolio is exactly the same. There is going to be pain, but no pain, no gain. And the client, the investor, has to know, I trust this advisor such that he knows who I, who I am. So he gave me a portfolio, like an exercise regime, that, me, that fits with my preferences. And it basically gives me the minimum pain for the maximum gain. But if we think that a portfolio will be no pain, only gain, well, uh, you know, welcome to the world. It doesn't work that way. Any portfolio in order to achieve the client goals, uh, it will involve some pain. By the way, otherwise, why do I need a financial advisor? If I can basically achieve all my goals given my constraints, how much money do I make? Why do I need to invest at all? People need to invest because given the amount of money that they have, they cannot achieve their goals. And different types of investment are basically different pains and different gains. And for each client, given the client's preferences or the client's attitudes towards risk, towards time, and the client goals, different portfolios will solve differently the pain versus gain. And when I'm coming to you, my dear financial advisor, what I'm asking you is give me the portfolio that given who Shahar is, will be the minimal pain for the maximal gain. 
But it has to be clear, there is going to be pain. You're certainly right that pain is a reality in an investor's life and usually the biggest barrier to progress. Maybe you could help our listener just lower that pain threshold a little bit. You know, sometimes, as you know, as a behavioral economics expert, understands that reframing things can make something that was otherwise painful somewhat less painful. Is there something that you think could do that's simple, that's small, seemingly small, that can maybe reframe the picture and help somebody do something that will promote their long-term welfare? I would basically think about uh, reframing, repackaging. They are important. They are really, really important. But these are like Tylenol and Advil. <laughs> For the really difficult times, right, take an Advil. But you don't want to be addicted to it because when you have a migraine, you know, you need to take an Advil. But you cannot live on angels. You cannot look at the world and basically reframe it all the time in order to make things look more rosy than they are. You really need to understand who I am as an investor and trust your advisor to know the market because it's very difficult to know the market. And trust your advisor that the advisor basically knows the market, knows who you are, and can get you to what you want with the minimal pain. And I think that the most important thing is creating mutual understanding between the client and the advisor, who the client is. And I believe in all my heart, and based on all the knowledge that I have, that behavioral economics now has the methods in order to facilitate this understanding. Behavioral economics holds out some hope for our future and for the future conversation that I intend to have with you. <laughs> I really, I can't wait. And I think that we should do maybe, uh, we should do one in person in front of the whiteboard uh, in my office. Uh, so uh, I think we can take it to the next level by standing in front of the whiteboard. So you have an open invitation to Berkeley. Well, thank you very much. That's my alma mater. I haven't been there in <laughs> decades, I think, but uh, it would be, be wonderful to walk the beautiful campus, Strawberry Creek, see it again, but most of all, to meet you in person. So looking forward, amazing behavioral economist, chairman of the Department of Economics at UC Berkeley. Pleasure to speak with you again. And thank you very much. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening. You can contact me at gill at seekingalpha.com if you have any feedback or requests. And make sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts. This is Seeking Alpha's Gil Weinrich.